I have somewhat a privileged viewpoint compared to you, I understand at this point. I can see that we're blessed with a wonderful audience today in that some who've been sick are able to be back with us. So many of the pews are very much filled today, and for that we're so thankful that each of us have an enjoyment of health and a betterment in that respect to be able to come together today. Let's not forget the singing this afternoon at the 2 o'clock hour, and if at all possible, make, make plans to be back with us then. We always have a wonderful time hosting the Putnam County Singing on the third Sunday in August. We have many singers from nearby communities and congregations, and we, it's just a wonderful time to lift our voices together in praise and exaltation of the name of God. We continue this morning our series of studies as we work our way through the New Testament. We noticed some two Sundays ago as we began looking at an overview of the New Testament, the power and majesty of the need to rightly divide the word of truth, 2 Timothy 2.15. One of the things that can aid us in accomplishing that task is to have a basic idea in mind of what each book of the New Testament is about, and in so doing to be able to appreciate the major message we saw in the gospel accounts, Matthew through John, the perfect, the only perfect life ever lived. The power and might of the life of our Lord. We saw, in fact, as those books closed, His resurrection, following, of course, His crucifixion. But then we appreciated in the book of Acts, the establishment of the church. How grand it was on that recording of the day of Pentecost in Acts, the second chapter. And in that occasion, explosive and very powerful growth of that body. And what it is that one must do in order to become a Christian. All detailed for us and many examples in the book of Acts. In Romans through 2 Corinthians, we saw the simple truth of the power of a system of obedient faith. In the Corinthian church, we noticed problems that should remind us that individuals may in fact have to face problems today and so too it may be with churches, but they can be overcome and they can be such that the Word of God will provide the answer. It was so for the church in Corinth. That brings us today to where you and I shall begin as we now look at the book of Galatians. As we come to the book of Galatians, we have, as this slide will hopefully detail, arrived at a very interesting and beautiful selection of epistles. Would you consider some of the main points of this book as we then will follow it with the book of Ephesians? The book of Galatians is a very powerful idea in the sense that written again by the Apostle Paul, addressed to the churches, plural, of Galatia. As that opening verse details that thought for us, it reminds us of the historical setting of the book which will be vital for us to appreciate the major thing contained in it. In the 16th chapter of Acts, Paul came to the region of Galatia, that region in the north and also in the eastern part of the part of Asia Minor. When Paul came there, he did preach the truth and preach the gospel. However, after Paul departed and left that area, false teachers moved in. These false teachers were Judaizing teachers, and in that sense they taught that in order to appreciate and apply the blessings of the New Testament, one must pass through the channels of Judaism. That is, one must be circumcised, one must hold to the law of Moses in order to become a Christian. This greatly troubled the individuals in Galatia, for they had not heard Paul teach that. Thus, when these false teachers came, they began to accept these false teachings and thus to give into their mind the thought that one must obey the Old Testament in order to please God today. 
in six rather powerful and pointed chapters, Paul writes to them and tries to help them see that that which is being taught to them is not the truth of God, these Judaizing teachers' doctrine. Rather, he calls them back to the simplicity of the gospel he had proclaimed to them not many years before. Let's take a brief journey and hit some of the high points of that book. In Galatians 1 verse 4, Paul very dramatically and amazingly sets before them about the nature of Christ. He is in fact the center point of any person's faith, or should be, with regard to Christ. It is there, says, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil world according to the will of God and our Father. The very one who can deliver us from that which is under control of Satan, namely this world, 2 Corinthians 4 verse 4, is none other than Christ. We must thus tie on to him and never leave his side. For even as Paul will now tell these Galatians, note two very powerful questions he asks them. He begins in these words in chapter 5 verses 6 and 7. Who did hinder you that you should not follow Christ? For he notes, you did run well. There was a time that they had been very devoted in their following of Christ. But by virtue of the evil influence of these false teachers, they no longer were running well. They had been hindered. Paul even directs them and calls them as being foolish. In that, chapter 3, verse 1, they were not following what the evidence of Paul's teaching indicated. No wonder he will say to them in chapter 4, verse 19, Am I your enemy because I tell you the truth? You and I today should appreciate that when we stand on the squareness of the gospel and proclaim that with tactness and power to others, we have no reason to be ashamed. And even if others may consider us their enemy in love, we actually are the kindest friend they would ever have. We're trying to help them not stand before God regretful on the day of judgment. We're attempting to tell them what can save their soul from sin. Paul said, am I your enemy because I tell you the truth? In chapter 4 verse 9, he even highlighted this thought. After having become those that followed the Savior, how could you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements and begin coming bondage thereunto? You see, what they were being taught were in fact the weak and beggarly elements that would lead them aside from truth. Perhaps that takes us back to chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. For having noted this thing that these Galatians were now being taught, Paul says, But though we, or an angel from heaven, should preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. Galatians, how many gospels are there? Paul says there's one. These other things that others may claim to be the gospel are not. They are perversions, and as such, they are not the truth revealed by God. The Galatians needed to then return back to the truth that they had once been delivered, and in that truth, it was the very truth, verses 9 and 10 of Galatians 1, which was certified by God and revealed by revelation to Paul. He says he didn't learn it of men, nor did he find it delivered by men. Maybe that leads us to interject a powerful point. In regard to the gospel, human hands never touched it. It is not the concoction of human imagination, nor is it, in fact, the thoroughfare of some scholarly work. It is delivered by God in the simplicity and power stated by Paul for you and me to appreciate, love, and obey. As we come then to chapter 2, we readily discover the 
fact that these in the Galatian location were such that Paul had at least for a moment to defend his own position as an apostle and the one who bore to them the nature of the gospel. He does it in this language. He says there was, namely Peter or Cephas, the one who carried the gospel for the circumcision. He said that he, namely Paul, had been blessed to be the one carrying it to the uncircumcision. In fact, he notes a very careful time when even Peter was to be blamed because, in fact, he did not walk according to the truth. Paul noted then that as a blessed one who was the servant of God had to in fact call Peter to the face and ask him to realize he was a hypocrite, refusing to eat with those who had come from James when in fact James came to, to eat with that, those of that location. Might we see the importance of never being hypocritical? We must in fact live what we preach, practice it if you will, and doesn't that lead us to the next point? Galatians 2, verses 16 to 21. In the closing part of that chapter, we come back to a very strong argument Paul makes in light of the point that these Judaizing teachers had brought. Their point was, you must obey the Old Testament in order to be pleasing to God today. Verse 16, as it closes, he says, No flesh shall be justified by the law. By the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. That point was a difficult matter for they to appreciate who thought that the works of the law was a necessary accompaniment to justification. For that reason, in verses 20 and 21, he could say, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me for the life that I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not frustrate the grace of God, for if righteousness come by the law, Christ is dead in vain. There was an argument that no doubt the Judaizing teachers were unable to answer. If it was possible to be justified by the law of Moses, why did the Savior come and why did he die at Calvary? There would have been no need for him to come if a man could be justified by the law of Moses. As that point continues on into chapter 3, he answers a very powerful question, no doubt that they of Galatia would be tempted to ask. The question would be this. If the law does not provide justification, and Paul had just said it doesn't, why did God ever give it? Why did he ever give that law at Sinai for the Hebrew people to keep? He answers, Paul does that question, beginning in verse 16 of chapter 3. The question, if we may paraphrase and summarize, takes this form. The promise that God gave was not given in the form of that law. The grandeur and power of God's promise was given long before the law ever came. Abraham is the one to whom God gave promise, as we find in the book of Genesis. Notice again in chapter 22, verse 18, In thy seed shall all families of the earth be blessed, because thou hast obeyed my voice. The promise was given to Abraham long before circumcision was ever in vogue, and long before the law was ever given at Sinai. Thus, the point is, it's by promise that we receive the blessings of God, not by law. And thus, Paul says that in these words in verse 19, the law was given to check sin. The law was given to restrain or constrain humankind so that sin would not abound. But it was only temporary in that it was given until the seed should come. 
perhaps that famous verse you and I know so well in verses 24 and 25 of chapter 3. The law is our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. The law thus was never intended by God to be permanent. It was only a shadow of what was to come. But when the faith has come, we know then that law passed away. It should be thus noted very carefully as chapter 3 closes. He uses that point to tie it directly to the gospel. For in verses 26 and 27 we read, We are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. How are we pleasing to God today? Not by circumcision, not by the law of Moses, but by tying on to the promise of God through Abraham, which found its fulfillment in the Son of God. For it is in being baptized into Him that we are then the seed of Abraham by faith. Galatians 3.29 In chapter 4, verse 4, When the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth His Son made of a woman made under the law, and it is through Him we can call God our Father. As chapter 4 reaches verses 18 and following, we have the opportunity to see the most famous allegory in all the Bible. There are other allegories, but none compares to this one. Paul here presents what is the deepest and most profound allegory in all of the Word of God. He uses two women in two mountains to set forth the very idea and thought of how superior... The New Testament is to the Old. There was Hagar and there was Ishmael. There was also, as we well remember, Sarah and her son Isaac. Paul makes the point, You and I have not come to Mount Sinai, but we have come to Mount Zion. For just as surely as the son of promise was Isaac and not Ishmael, we have all the great blessings of God through the character of the New Testament gospel and not the Old Testament law of Moses. That allegory is a powerful way to lead us to chapter 5. In fact, you and I have the grandeur of liberty and freedom. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith God has made us free. Galatians 5 verse 1. And in that freedom we can see in verse 4, Paul very clearly says to them, You have fallen from grace. If you expect to be justified by the law, you have fallen from grace. Isn't it strange then and somewhat perplexing? that some today teach that it's not possible to fall from grace. When Paul told the Galatians they had, there was a time they were in fellowship with God, they no longer were. How much clearer can it be taught then that it's possible for a Christian, if he or she so chooses, to be lost, if he or she does not remain faithful under the commandments of the gospel? In chapter 5, specifically verses 19 and following, we can also see the contrast between the fruit of the Spirit and the works of the flesh. Paul makes a listing of a number of things that should be not part of the life of a Christian and other things, those fruits of the Spirit, that must be. Things like joy and meekness and love. Those should be in our lives and they should abound. That brings us to the closing chapter of this book. In the sixth chapter, we have a number of practical ideas to help us day by day in our attempt to walk pleasingly unto God. Maybe one of the first ideas, what about that individual that's weak? It's no wonder that many have noted the similarity between this book and the Roman letter. Many teachings are similar between them, just as surely as Romans 14 and 15 addresses how you and I should interact with brethren who are immature or weak. 
Notice here, brethren, if any man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. And the next verse, bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. The impressive community of faith that God has established, and you and I as members of it have obligation one to another, to that brother that's erred from the faith in love and in meekness. We should strive to restore that individual. Might we notice in verses 7 and 8, that very overwhelming and somewhat straightforward text, Be not deceived, God is not mocked. May we never forget, For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption, but he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. Which kind of crop do you and I want to harvest? Do we want to sow our wild oats and certainly reap what we have sown? We shall see the regretfulness of so doing. But if we to the Spirit will sow what the Spirit gives us to sow, of that Spirit we shall reap life eternal. No wonder in this life we are urged to live it wisely and to live it in accordance to the great harmony of God by sowing by way of the things of our life that which we should, that which God has given us to sow. Notice in the verses that follow, we're told to do good unto all men, especially unto them that are of the household of faith. For isn't it true in verses 15 and 16, it is not circumcision or uncircumcision that avails. Rather, it's faith that works by love. And what's more, you and I as members of the church are part of the Israel of God today. Galatians 6 verse 16. I would suspect that as that letter closed and as they received it, they came to realize that these Judaizing teachers and their doctrine were not their friends. They were sharing what was corrupting the things that they ought to be doing. That brings us to the book of Ephesians. The second one in our study this morning. In the Ephesian letter, we find a very different tone and a very different consideration. Perhaps it would be well to note it in this fashion. The book of Ephesians, many have noted, has as its central theme and idea the church of Christ. Through six scintillating chapters, Paul highlights the church and carries it to the zenith and pinnacle of glory. You and I, of course, as members thereof, should feel very, very privileged and very, very blessed. Let's take a journey through the book of Ephesians over the next few moments and remind ourselves of the worthiness of our position in that body. This is one of the four prison epistles of the New Testament, written by Paul while he was in a Roman prison. In chapter 1, verse 3, we immediately are brought face to face with the following blessing. Blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Question, where then are all spiritual blessings to be found? In Buddha, in Confucius, in the thinking of men, however noble or scholarly he may be? Apparently not, for Paul says they're in Christ. One of those blessings in verse number 7 is the redemption of our sins and the forgiveness to be found understood in that fact. May we never lose sight the thing that Christ affords us so wonderfully is the forgiveness of our sins. Oh, it's true, fellowship with God is monumental and something for an eternity we count on enjoying. But in the here and now, to recognize day by day the forgiveness and the redemption from sin, Christ's blood makes that possible.
In Ephesians 1 verse 10, in the fullness of time, God shall sum up all things in Christ. Do you and I want to know the centerpiece in all of history? The idea that makes it all make sense? It's Christ. Take Him out of history and you have something that's like Swiss cheese. It's full of holes. But put Christ in place. All of history will make sense. The book of Revelation reminds us of that truth as well in Revelation chapters 4 and 5. As we recognize also in chapter 1 of the Ephesian letter, what is the guarantee of our salvation? Verses 13 and 14, the gift of the Holy Spirit. What's more, what about the overwhelming truth of verses 22 and 23? After Paul had prayed for the ascendancy and the goodness of the Ephesians, he made this statement. In verses 22 and 23, speaking of Jesus, he affords and declares him to be the head of the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Might we pause for just a moment to conclude. We notice then that God has a body. Christ, this body, or rather I should say Christ has a body. This body is not a physical one, but a spiritual body of Christ. And in that body, we notice it has a head, namely Jesus. As we hold that thought in mind, it'll recur interestingly throughout this book. So let's look at chapter 2 and see where it may occur again. In chapter 2, having noted then that Christ is the head of the church we notice that the scene turns rather dark in a hurry. Verse number 1, You were dead in your trespasses and sins. The Bible has such a pointed way of presenting its ideas so often, doesn't it? Dead. Notice, not physically dead, but spiritually dead. When you and I, prior to our obedience of the gospel, you and I were spiritually dead. Lifeless. We were not in fellowship with God. In fact, in verse 12 of this chapter, we were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. We were strangers from the covenants of promise. We had no hope and were without God and Christ in the world. Can you think of any more dreaded description than that? But notice verse 4, things changed in a hurry. But God who is rich in mercy... God intervened on our behalf, sent His Son to the world, and by our obedience to Him, we have the overwhelming joy of verses 8, 9, and 10. What wording does Paul use? He says, But you have been saved by grace through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Pausing at that point, we see you and I then are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. You and I then should be busily doing good works for we've been saved by grace through faith. Does grace alone save? Absolutely not. Does faith alone save? Of course it doesn't. By grace through faith, it takes the accompaniment, accompanying activity of each. Perhaps we can thus see the reconciling beauty then of what Christ accomplished at the cross. In verses 14 to 17, we find the reconciliation that you and I can enjoy. Being able to be brought back to God, though we were enemies from Him. Isn't it true then that as the chapter closes, you and I can enjoy the citizenship that we can with God through Christ. That brings us to chapter 4. In chapter, or rather chapter number 3, I should say, in chapter 3, we can see the overwhelming power of what we read of, the unsearchable riches of Christ. 
As those unsearchable riches unfold in verse 8, we directly are taught how long they have been around. Notice verses 10 and 11. To the intent that now to the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God according to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. How long has it been thus a part of God's plan to save the human family through Jesus? Paul says it's the eternal purpose. Long before you and I were ever born, God had a plan whereby the human family could be redeemed. Shouldn't we be thankful to God for His loving favor to us? As that chapter closes, we have one of the finest hymns to be found anywhere. That beautiful exaltation in the name of Jesus. I'd encourage you to read that set of verses at some point this week. Verses 17 through 21 of Ephesians chapter 3. A part of that you'll notice was our text for the lesson this morning in verse 21. Would you revisit that with me? A part of the greatness of Christ's love is seen in the breadth and the depth and the height and the width of it. It passes knowledge. But in this verse, note the language with me if you would. Verse 21 of Ephesians 3. The overwhelming beauty and power of that text. It was in the language to be seen as follows. As the church is established, the glory of Christ, the glory of God seen in it. Have you ever thought about you and I being members of that body is a testimony of God's activity of the salvation of men? A testimony of His love and goodness to all of us? That church is what is illustrated in that passage and in that text. And it is the means by which we bring glory unto God. By Him be glory in the church, by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. With that said, chapter 4 opens in words that illustrate the unity that should be the church. The vocation to which we've been called, called is indeed a very high one, verse 1. The unity of the Spirit is described in these words beginning in verse number 4. There is one body and one hope even as you're called and one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. Just as surely as thus there is again the one gospel described to the Galatians, there's one faith described to the Ephesians. Have you obeyed that one faith? Have you made it a lively and abundant part of your day-by-day -day life? Notice just as surely as that one faith is described. The church is to be a body of edified individuals, verses 11 to 16. Do you edify one another? When you come together, do you look forward to those times of encouraging others to be more faithful? As chapter 4 closes, we're reminded of the new man. Notice that you and I aren't old. Perhaps by the physical features of our face, we may look to be aged. Have you ever thought, though, in Christ, you have put on the new man? And never do you become old in Christ. If every scientist could figure out how to make a physical body like that, wouldn't they be wealthy? But they shall never accomplish that feat. For you see, death is the end of our existence here in the flesh. But in this chapter, the new man is set before us. And that new man should involve himself in certain activities. He shouldn't steal, verse 28. But isn't it true? His mouth should not be that which speaks profanity, verse 30. But it should be that which glorifies God and brings about the edification of those who hear what's said, verse 29. 
Verse 32, be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, because isn't it true God hath forgiven you through Christ? The power of kindness. Notice chapter number 5. In Ephesians 5, we're reminded again about some things we ought not be doing. The Bible enjoins certain things, but it also enjoins not doing other things. Notice in verse 3, all uncleanness, and that includes idolatry as well as covetousness, should be no part of the life of the person interested in pleasing God. That is a day-by-day -day question then for each of us, isn't it? Do I ever allow anything unclean? And no, that means impure. That means something not approved by God. Do we ever allow that into our life? Note verses 8 and 11. The unfruitful works of darkness are to be forever put aside from us. That includes alcoholic beverages and all forms thereof, verse 18. But notice it also helps us see in verse 19, singing should be enjoined upon us. Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, that part is, of course, a joyful activity. We look forward to that again at 2 o'clock this afternoon. As we sing praises unto God, encouraging each other, we teach and admonish and magnify the name of our Heavenly Father. Beginning in verse 21 of this chapter, we see a very powerful comparison. On the one hand is a husband and his wife, the love that they share, the home that they afford. On the other hand is Christ and the church. Paul said in verse 32, I speak of a mystery. He was attempting to describe the beautiful union between Christ and His church. Just as surely as Christ is the bridegroom and the church is the bride, He uses a husband and his wife to help us understand that point. Husbands are to love their wives. Wives are to be submissive to their husbands. In so doing, Christ loves His church and gave Himself for it. Just as surely the church should submit to the head. Submit faithfully and fully to every commandment that the head has given. Notice in verse 27, that means that that church is to be a spotless and blemishless body. We should ever strive to keep the spiritual body of Christ as pure as Christ kept His physical body. No doubt that's a challenging matter, but we must attempt it, for that's the way that Scripture's commanded. As chapter 6 opens... We find a set of practical ideas to help us ever be that which is a blessed and powerful entity for Christ. Verse 1, notice that children are to obey their parents. Verse 4, parents are to bring their children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Beginning in verse 5, servants are to obey their masters. Verses 9 and following, masters are to properly account themselves with respect to their servants. No stone left unturned. So it is in verse 10 and following, you and I are to arm ourselves with a panoply of God, the beautiful Christian armor therein described. Why, Paul? Because we are in constant warfare. Satan is our enemy. He is battling, and we must ever battle him properly if we expect to overcome. A number of the things mentioned, the beautiful shield of faith, the breastplate of righteousness, the sword of the Spirit, helmet shod with, in fact, the proper helmet of salvation. As all that is mentioned, may we never forget, feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Have you and I covered ourselves in every way with the gospel as described? 
We must if we expect to be victorious. For if there, if there is any chink opening in that armor, Satan will find it. We can rest assured he will find it. For he is a roaring lion walking about seeking whom he may devour. 1 Peter 5, 8. With that said, the chapter rather quickly reaches its conclusion and closes. For in verse number 18, may we not forget the importance of prayer. Arming ourselves with these other things, such as the sword of the Spirit, the only offensive weapon mentioned, leads us to see too that we mustn't pray always. That God will be with us and aid us as we fight the good fight of faith. That study of the Ephesian letter has centered again on the church of Christ. What it means to be a part of that body and all the goodness to be found therein. Perhaps it would be well to briefly summarize that book as we contemplate what it means to be a part of that body. What it means to, in fact, illustrate its greatness in our life. For is it not fair to say, no church, no salvation? Those who perhaps think the church is an optional matter, that somehow one can be saved separate and apart from that body, have failed to appreciate the eternal purpose which He purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. For what is it today that manifests to the bodies and the heavenly beings the greatness of God's plan for human salvation? Ephesians 3 verse 10 says it's the church. Have you ever thought about the fact that when those in heavenly realms are interested in seeing the absolute zenith and pinnacle of God's manifold wisdom, what do they look at? Do they look at the galaxies that He's created? Do they look at the glory of all the physical things God fashioned and made? No, they look at the church. You and I illustrate and display the fullness of God's intelligence in regard to the nature of human salvation. How privileged we then are to be members of the body of Christ. How wonderful it is to, according to Acts 2.47, have been baptized and in so doing to have entered that body. Thus the personal question, have you become a member of that body? I nor any other human on earth have power to introduce you into that body. I can't do it. The greatest preacher who has ever lived other than Christ cannot do it. You see, we are baptized into that body and it is Christ who adds you. I can't do it. The elders here at Pippin can't do it. But Christ can. He adds you to His body, and in so doing, you can then walk in fellowship with Him. Question then, have you obeyed that one gospel that the Galatians said they must obey? Paul said to them, If any man preach any other gospel unto you than that which we've preached unto you, let him be accursed. Our world is awash with various theories and philosophies and ideas and speculations that claim to be the thoroughfare to salvation. But if it is not the message of the gospel, we can rest assured that the person is lying. Perhaps is deceived, but at any rate is lying. May we recognize the beauty of one truth, one gospel, one faith. If you need to respond to that fully today, it may be that you've understood previously what Christ did, but you've never allowed yourself to obey it in a public way. I know that there is a bit of nervousness in regard to publicly affirming before others that you're a sinner, but friend, that doesn't make you special at all. Every human being that's ever lived apart from Christ has sinned. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That doesn't 
mean that your life is a dark spectacle and in such a way must remain, you can change. You can allow the glorious light of the gospel of Christ into your life, 2 Corinthians 4, 6. And if you will do that, Christ will brighten your way and you will be able to display to others about you the light that now dwells within you. If you just need to respond publicly today, believe Jesus to be the Son of God. Confess, or rather repent of your sins, for they are what have separated you from Him. Confess His glorious name as the Son of God and be baptized. We'd be happy to help you in those latter two steps. Once you do that, walk faithfully until death. If you, however, have begun that walk but have not remained faithful, come back to that first love today. There is an auditorium full of people who would be excited to pray on your behalf. I suspect many prayers have been lifted to God on your behalf already that you would come to recognize the urgency of your situation as being lost. If we could be of assistance today to pray on your behalf, we'd be honored to do that. We need you to let it be known, though. And as we stand in just a moment and sing, we'll be happy to aid you in the ways that, that would be of help, of help to you. If you even need prayers and encouragement, would you not let it be known, even now while together we stand and while we sing.